This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activities. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. What are your expectations this Lenten season? I ask this because fundamentally I think the gospel subverts our expectations. And I think that it continually subverts our expectations. We, we get to a place where we have um, received the, the revelation of God. We've read scripture. We've heard it at mass. We've received the sacraments. And we get to a place where we figure out we know pretty well what we're doing here in this Christianity, in this Catholic thing that we do. And we're used to the idea that... that um, the gospel subverts expectations, but we expect now that that's going to be for people who have not yet had the gospel revealed to them. That for those people who are coming into the church, maybe this this Easter, maybe they're in RCAA, uh, maybe it's a uh, people who have lived secular lives their whole lives that they are going to have their expectations subverted by the gospel. But the more I sit with it, the more that I'm convinced and like truly, deeply convinced that God is in the business of subverting our expectations. He's in the business of challenging our assumptions, whatever they may be. Um, we talked about this before on the show. Uh, I had my wife come on around the feast of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, and we talked about some difficulty that we had encountered personally in our lives around this question of what does the providence of God look like? We had expectations. We'd lived in the church our entire life, um, in Christianity our entire life. We came into the church in 2011, into the Catholic Church. Uh, and, and even still, we had expectations about what the providence and goodness of God looked like. And those expectations were challenged and pushed and stretched uh, not because they were wrong, but because they weren't quite right. And now, on this side of it, um, I, I can say that looking back on what I had understood about God's goodness was incomplete. Now I have a different perspective. But even in this place, I'm not satisfied with it. I'm convinced that God is in the business of subverting expectations. And he wants to invite us to a place where we don't enter into every conversation with assumptions, but enter into that conversation with him through prayer, through, um, through almsgiving, through fasting, these, these typical uh, pillars of the Lenten season. And I'm convinced that, that God wants us to enter into these conversations with him with fresh eyes to see who, it is, who he is in this moment, to see what his gracious and merciful will is in this moment, not bringing in any assumptions or preconceptions about how we're going to encounter God in this moment. You look at the, uh, the story of the disciples following after Jesus, and every day was an exercise in what is he going to do next, Right. Um, the, the expectations of societal norms were constantly being flipped on their end uh, by Jesus saying, you know what, I know it's not the cultural norm 
for uh, for a man to talk to a woman, um, but he, or to go through Samaria or to do all these other things. But here we are. We're going to come through Samaria and we're going to talk to this woman at the well in the middle of the day, right? Every single day, I think, for these apostles, this was an exercise in Jesus subverting their expectations to the point that after these three years, they could then uh, appropriately understand what it meant to follow after him day by day. They had done that in his presence. Now they had that relationship and that conversation. And as he granted them the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they were able to maintain that conversation and to continue to follow him wherever he would lead, subverting their expectations so that then then they could carry on the work of ministry that Jesus began. He says in the scriptures, greater things than what you have seen me do Greater than these you will do because I go to the Father to send the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, upon you. So for three years, Jesus subverted the expectations of the apostles so that then they could go out and carry out the mission for which he'd been sent, to carry the gospel, to proclaim the good news. This didn't happen overnight. But it happened as they allowed their expectations to be reformed. And I don't think they were reformed into, uh, oh, well, now I know what to expect. I think that they were trained, and, and we are also being invited to be trained, to not have these expectations, but merely to wake up and say, here I am, Lord. I come to do your will. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Here I am, Holy Spirit, come and tell me what you want me to do. This, I think, is the ultimate goal for us to come to an abandonment to divine providence, that we say to ourselves, God, you guide the way. I'm not going to come with any expectation except the expectation that you are good and you are faithful and you will not abandon me. Well, so maybe you've already had an experience like this where you um, come to an understanding of who God is in a more profound way. You had your expectations subverted. You know, one of the ways that we, um, we grow as Christians is to hear the testimony and the stories of other people. So I would love to hear your story of subverted expectation. Why don't you come over and share it on social media? Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle is at Outside the Walls. And come and share with us how God got through to you. What was your expectation that was subverted? What was the experience that he took you through? And on the other side of that, now what is your understanding? What is your um, your your deeper revelation of who God is and, and who he is to you? And if I get even five stories, uh, just, just five stories, even between the two platforms, come and share that story. If we get five stories, I've got this book uh, called What Christ Suffered, A Doctor's Journey Through the Passion. came out uh, pretty recently from our Sunday visitor, osv.com. They sent me a copy, and I would love to put this in your hands. Dr. Thomas McGovern uh, draws on the the teachings of Pope St. John Paul II from uh, Salvifici Dolores, 
uh, and invites us to a deeper understanding of the meaning and the value of human suffering and how it applies to our lives. So again, um, give me a story of how God brought you through, subverted an expectation, gave you a deeper revelation of, of his character, of his goodness. Uh, let us know, and I'll pick a winner. I will send this to you, put this in your hands as spiritual reading uh, to help you through this Lenten season. So here we are, back, back in the Lenten season, back at this place of self-examination, of penance, of uh, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, of trying to grow closer to God, to examine the Paschal mystery, and to feel and receive the grace of resurrection uh, all over again. But I have to tell you, it kind of feels like it's been Lent since 2020, right? We, we've been in this penitential season for a very long time. And, and yet here it is, we have this opportunity to observe Lent 2021, still looking for and longing for the, um, the coming of Christ uh, in his resurrection, in his power and his glory. And so here we are, we're living in this Lenten season again. Um, it brings up to me this question of the wilderness that we see come all throughout Scripture. We have uh, Jesus retiring to a lonely place to go and pray and inviting the, the apostles to come away with me to a, to a lonely place, to a quiet place. And so I'm, I'm sitting with this, and I find such um, an interesting situation here that the the desert, the lonely place, is typically something that we would associate with um, isolation and, and negative feelings and a lack of life. And yet here is where Jesus invites the disciples, where he invites us uh, to come and to commune with him, both in the story in, in the New Testament and also here in our uh, our experience today in 2021, we're invited in the season of Lent to come and to encounter him in the wilderness. So uh, to explore this topic a little bit more, we have Joe Heschmeyer joining us again. This is number 18, 18 episodes that we've had you on. Always a pleasure, Joe, to have you here. Thanks. It's always a pleasure to be here. So uh, one of the things that um, that you've experienced, and maybe we'll touch on this a little bit here in a moment as well, um, as a single man uh, in your former days, you had the opportunity one to be isolated uh, at, at at your at your leisure, um, but then also to to seek God in particular ways uh, that are no longer available to you. And then, of course, when you went into seminary, there was a mandated retreat every year where they say, you, go away to a lonely place, be silent, encounter the Lord. Um, and and you did that. And every priest and every deacon and every seminarian around the world has that canonically mandated for them. Um, and yet we, we lay people, the busyness of life and the place where life happens, right, uh, gets to be such that we don't feel like we have the time, that we don't have the ability to go away and get to a lonely place, to to find our way into that silence. And so I wanted to talk here as we're entering into, or really kind of well into Lent now, what does it look like for us to choose that lonely place and that wilderness um, 
to find actual life and to find refreshment and fulfillment in a place that maybe we wouldn't otherwise expect. Yeah. I love the way you post that. Um, several things kind of came up as you were, as you were sharing that the first is kind of just, uh, an amusing anecdote from today. Like I was, I was trying to write. And so I closed the door to the, uh, the room I was working in. And so my daughter, who's one came over to, to like knock on the door and very sweetly be like, open, open. Like, she just wanted to, you know, see me, just wanted to hang out. Didn't have anything she needed, just like wanted to be there. Those are adorable moments, really valuable, beautiful moments. But also like, uh, I'm not going to lie, they they take away a little bit from the, effect, uh, you know, the effectiveness and efficiency with which I can work. And so, yeah, the idea of like getting away to a lonely place for so many reasons, I think for a lot of parents sounds amazing. <laughs> but like you said, it, it also sounds irresponsible and impossible in so many things. I don't think that they, that it is. I just think that those are the those are the stories that we tell ourselves like we you know this this wouldn't work without me being here 24/7 that kind of thing and and that's exhausting and that's um something that gets in the way of both priests and parents in a in a similar kind of story. It's the story of like this can't go on without me. Like I'm totally essential to this thing happening. And I, I had a priest back when I was in seminary, he used to say, you know, the cemetery is full of these, you know, so-called necessary priests. Hmm. Like the parish got on without them. The church is fine without them. They, they, you know, worked themselves to death thinking that nothing could happen unless they were doing it. And then things continued. And it was to dissuade me of that kind of lie, that, that kind of, you know, self-delusion. And I think there's something similar as a parent. Now, obviously, as a parent, it's a little different because if I decide to just like go peace out on a weekend retreat, uh, my wife's probably going to have some things to say about it if I don't like <laughs> run that idea by her. You know, my daughter might be, you know, pretty hungry by the time I get back. You know, those kinds of obviously parents are in one sense. Yeah, strictly necessary. But with things like babysitters and with things like, frankly, two parents, mm-hmm. um, there are ways of making it work. It can be more of a sacrifice. And so then the question is kind of like, well, why take the sacrifice? And I think the question is not like, do I have time for it? Do I have space for it? But like, can I afford not to do it? Mm-hmm. And to really see that, I think you have to be really convicted of the fact that you cannot do it by yourself. Um, in John's gospel, the last supper, when Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And then he says that if you abide in him, you'll bear great fruit, but that apart from him, you can do nothing. Mm-hmm. I have believed the first of those two things a lot longer than I've believed the second one. Like I believed in like, yeah, when I abide in Christ, I see the results. It's amazing. What I don't always believe, what I often find myself falling into is the idea that apart from him, I can actually do nothing. Because I keep trying to cut him deals where I like give him <laughs> the time I have left over to be like, okay, okay, I got like a few more things to do and then I'll spend time with you or I got a few more things to do and then like I'll let you take control. And it's like, no, no, no. Like God cannot be your co-pilot. Like that's stupid, the, the bumper sticker is wrong. Mm-hmm. He's either the pilot or not at all. Like he's not going to take second fiddle. He's either going to be in control or he's not. Uh, and so we have to kind of believe that like this, whole self-reliance thing is, is mostly delusion. And it's, it's the thing that draws us away from God, that we need to be filled up. My very first spiritual director described it as like going on a road trip 
and deciding you're going to save time by skipping the gas station. And I go back to that image a lot. Like these times where it maybe feels like you don't have time for it. You, you really, you don't have time not to do it. Like you don't have time not to go to the gas station. If you've got a long trip ahead of you, likewise, you don't have time not to spend some serious time in isolation and in prayer in a lonely place with God. So let's, let's talk about this with this metaphor of the gas station. Um, so many of us, uh, we don't feel like we have time for the full fill up, right? So I'm going to go and I'm going to, I'm going to just put a, put a, a gallon in and see how long that gets me. And when it starts to get low, I'm going to put, you know, three, three to $5 in, which is about a gallon around here uh, and, and see how far that gets me. And we just kind of coast along always kind of on the edge of stress. And yeah, we're, we've got gas, but, but there's just not a lot of, of margin. Um, so here we are, we're being invited in this season of Lent to come away to a lonely place, to, uh, to deny ourselves some of the, um, the excesses that we normally enjoy. Uh, let's talk about what does it look like, shy of the, the Ignatian 30-day retreat, right? What does it look like for us as we are still having to balance and, and juggle the demands of life, our jobs and our families and, and our other obligations, what does it look like for us to come away to a solitary place in a meaningful way rather than just coasting on fumes throughout our day? Yeah. So I find um, if I am around the house, it's a lot harder to get that lonely place time. Even, even something as simple as like a holy hour. Um, I think a lot of people probably experience this with coronavirus and everything being shut down and churches being closed and all that. Like the normal places I would get to to pray to create a little bit of like physical separation and space. And like, people aren't going to just like, you know, knock on the door and ask you for something. If you're like at church praying, uh, when that's gone and you're at home, that it's a different dynamic. And so I think more than ever, there's a need if possible to actually get out to somewhere that isn't your home, that isn't your normal ambit. Uh, and if at all possible, and it almost definitely is, somewhere where you can actually turn off your phone, like somewhere where you can actually just like check out for a while. Now I, I can foresee a lot of objections people will have from scheduling to money to everything else. Uh, and I would say this, uh, there is one place. Now, one of the things that Midwest has, in addition to being able to get two gallons of gas for that $5 <laughs> um, is that we also have the cloisters on the plat up in the Omaha area mm-hmm. in Southern Nebraska. And J.D. Ricketts of America, Ameritrade fame uh, bequeathed like, I don't know, like eight figures uh, to the Jesuits to build a retreat center that's free hmm. and pretty amazing. And the accommodations are incredible. And all, all it is, like the, the setup goes like this. Like you go up there Thursday evening, you come back Sunday uh, once a year. And so it's just like a few days out of the year. Now, the beautiful thing is once you get on the schedule, there's often a waiting list, right? Uh, once you get on the schedule, you have the spot reserved for the next year. And so you can actually plan for it. You can plan around it. The same way you would a vacation, the same way you would like anything else that you thought was an important reason to break from your normal schedule. And I just say, yeah, like this is going to cost you something. Like even if, even if the retreat itself is free, 
it might cost you a day of work. It might cost you like, you know, some inconveniences for your family. You know, the way my wife and I do it is we both just have a weekend. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a fair trade, you know, like there's, there's one weekend where, you know, I'm doing all the parenting. There's one weekend where she's doing all the parenting. We don't compare. Like one of us does better. I'm not going to say which one, but like. We all know, Joe. Yeah, we all know. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter will tell you. No. <laughs> but it's, it's that, you know, so basically I'm saying like there is a cost. I, I'm not insensitive to that. And for some people, maybe it is unrealistic or impossible, but I think a lot more people could do this than do it because they exaggerate what that cost would be or they underappreciate how important it is to actually take this time because it's easy to be like, I don't know what I do on this. I don't know what I, you know, it, the, you know, the, the one I just mentioned, Cloisters on the Plot is somewhat uh, guided, mm-hmm. but you still have, you're, you're still in silence basically the entire weekend. That is so refreshing and I've never met someone who went to it or anything like that, who came back and said, well, well that was a waste of my time. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's rejuvenating, you know, just a human bodily level to spend a weekend where you're not constantly interacting. You'll be stunned at what a reset it is. Now I'm going to, I'm going to push back a little bit because I am an extrovert and I've done a couple of these and I'll have to, I'll have to tell you that I agree that it is rejuvenating afterward when i get home i recognize how rejuvenated i am but the whole time that i am there specifically if it's a short period of time like a couple of days it's uh, i'm constantly refocusing myself saying i'm supposed to i'm not supposed to wander over to that thought or to that thought or that thought i'm just continually refocusing myself on the fact that i'm here to meet with god and it's like after i've maybe the last day uh, I, I have a, a maybe a, a spiritual breakthrough. I feel the refreshing. And afterwards, it's like, yeah, that was good. I, I, I should do that again. But even the process of making ourselves sit in silence, um, I, I think that this maybe as a, as a step toward this, this ideal of going on a retreat is to say, I'm going to spend the next hour turning off my phone, turning off my TV, and I'm just going to sit in silence. And 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 specifically in silent prayer. Well, even honestly, starting with just silence can be a really good way of preparing for silent prayer mm-hmm. in ways that we don't always appreciate. Like if you can't handle silence, you can't handle silent prayer. And a lot a lot of people just can't handle silence. Now I'm also very much extroverted. I also get you know why it can be a battle. Um, one of the things that I did a, a ten day silent retreat. And at the end of it, my retreat director told me, when you get back in the car, uh, don't just turn the radio on. Like I had an hour and a half drive Mm -hmm. and he said, you know, just leave it off for a while. And ever since then, I I try to just leave the radio off where not meaning I'll never turn it on, but meaning I won't have it like automatically come on when the car starts. So that if I turn it on, it's an intentional act. Um, And it's usually for a reason because Prior to that, it was just like I was constantly filling my life with noise without even realizing I was filling my life with noise, uh, often things I didn't really care about. Mm-hmm. So those kind of little ways of carving out little niches for silence can be so big and so important. Um, in paragraph 27, 26 of the Catechism, it refers to the battle of prayer and like what has to be done. I, I think that's such a critical thing to remember here too, 
that like, yeah, prayer is not easier. It wouldn't be called a battle in the catechism. Um, it's okay if it's a struggle. It's okay if like your prayer consists of, well, I got distracted seven times <laughs> and seven times I turned my attention back to God. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the eighth time I totally spaced out for 20 minutes and then the time was up. Like that's, that's okay. Honestly. Um, there's a, Eugene, a, oh yeah. It may be also in the catechism that, that says that the relationship with God is prayer. Uh, yeah. I felt so guilty for so long because, um, uh, I couldn't pray for very long, right? I, and I thought of prayer specifically being the formulation of words and intentions and and a, a specific direction, a beginning, a middle, and an end, like a good story supposed to have. And this realization that sometimes, just like with your spouse, sitting in the same room is connection. And yes. that kind of silence without the formulation of words and language and everything else, that just being present is just as much prayer as as the most eloquent thing you could come up with. So I want to actually read you 2726 because it speaks directly into this. It says, in the battle of prayer, we must face in ourselves and around us erroneous notions of prayer. In other words, here's what prayer isn't. Some people view prayer as a simple psychological activity. Others as an effort of concentration to reach a mental void. Still others reduce prayer to ritual words and postures. Many Christians unconsciously regard prayer as an occupation that is incompatible with all the other things they have to do. They don't have the time. Those who seek God by prayer are quickly discouraged because they do not know that prayer comes also from the Holy Spirit and not from themselves alone. So in other words, like it isn't just about like, oh, I've got to remember all the words to be able to pray or I've got to, you know, I've got to create this total emptiness where no distractions or no things from my life come in. None of that is what Christian prayer looks like. But, I mean, certainly there are times where you need to be free of the distractions. Certainly there are times where we use the, the formulas, but to reduce prayer to either of those things or to like the psychological dimension is to miss the heart of prayer and, and the role of the Holy Spirit in that, including as, as the catechism notes, like as you're doing everything else throughout your day. Mm-hmm. Um, that prayer isn't just for the times when you, when you're giving a hundred percent to God of your attention and of your focus. It's, it's for the times when you're also doing the things he's invited you to do and that those things should be compatible. Like they, they one of them nourishes the other one. And a lot of the spiritual masters talk about this. Um, you have this in Benedictine spirituality, but before I, long before I was ever Catholic, there was this book called practicing the presence of God by brother Lawrence, uh, who is a monk, that even though he was a Catholic monk, we Protestants read him all the time. Uh, and and there is this sense of finding God and finding prayer, even in the work that we do. When we come back, I want to dig into this question of, of the wilderness, of this lifeless place, yet it's a place that brings us life as we encounter God in it. Don't forget, come over to social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Tell me about how God has subverted your expectations. We're giving away what Christ suffered from Thomas W. McGovern. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to this conversation just after this break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. And uh, we're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer. He's an instructor at the Holy Family School of Faith. You can find him at schooloffaith.org. In Kansas City, Kansas, Joe, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. You know, uh, sometimes I plan these these conversations out just a long way in advance and have them on the calendar for a while. And there are other times that I just get a whim. I'm like, I really want to talk about X. And, uh, and this is one of those times I, I was reading in, um, the cultural handbook of the Bible. It's this little book by, uh, I think John Pilcher, I could be wrong on that, uh, Urban's press. And, and he goes through and, and breaks down some, some cultural understanding of specific language and words. And um, I, th- I think it follows this idea. And of course he didn't get it from here, but um, there's this idea put forward that I, I, I first heard from a professor at Wheaton university, uh, but I'm, it's not unique to him at all that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. Bible's written for us. It's for our edification. It's for our spiritual enrichment. It's for the purpose of revealing the, the who God is to us, his people. But it was written by an author to a specific audience at a specific time and place with cultural understandings and expectations and language and everything else. And so we have to take some time to really kind of dig in and understand what some of the nuances are. And so I was reading through this book, and he's talking about the desert. Um, in there, he says, you know, when we think of a desert, often uh, we think of sand dunes, and you know, Tatooine or something from Star Wars, if you're of that ilk. Uh, everything is sandy. There's no water. There's no life. There's skeletons everywhere and cacti. Uh, that's the picture that we have of desert. Uh, when we th- throw out the word wilderness, I tend to think of like... Um, you know, the Pacific Northwest national parks up here where, you know, grizzly bears and streams and huge tall trees. And none of these things, of course, represent what, uh, what would be Middle Eastern deserts, much less what would be the concept of the word desert that was often used in, in that culture, in that language. And so he's breaking out in this book the idea that a desert is the uninhabited place. It's the opposite of the city. You had a city and you had the wilderness. And that's pretty much the two kinds of places that you had. And so that puts a whole different spin on Jesus going out into the wilderness to to be tempted. A whole different spin on Elijah traversing the wilderness for 40 days or of the Egyptians, uh, the, the rather the children of Israel, wandering in the desert for 40 years. Um, we're not talking sub-Saharan desert. We're talking uninhabited, uh, lonely, isolated places. So with that in mind, Jesus invites his disciples to come out to the wilderness. Uh, and with, with Elijah, we see um, that he hears the still small voice of God and the presence of God and who God is is revealed to him in the wilderness. What does it look like for us uh, as disciples who are called by the name of Jesus to go out into the wilderness as we do every year for these 40 days of the season of Lent. Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways it means removing the distractions. Like I, I, 
I've been to the Holy Land and I know some of the areas being described as wilderness and they, it's true. You know, it isn't like a jungle. It isn't like the Sahara desert. Um, but it is like, yeah, a little more barren. Uh, it is, you know, there's a reason people don't live there. Right. Uh, you know, like you've got the area like near the dead sea and, you know, like it's, it's called that for a reason. Like it's, it's, you know, you get, you find these places that are a little more lifeless. Um, and it's good to get there. There are monks who who still live, you know, in places like that. And why? Because like you're you're avoiding uh, two kinds of distractions. One is just the distraction of the city that you alluded to, and the other, if we could put it this way, is the distraction of the garden, like the distraction of the abundance that we voluntarily remove some things from our lives because we live in, in these times of incredible abundance. I, I purposely connect the idea of the garden and the idea of the desert, because I think for one, the liturgical year does, mm-hmm. you know, the very first Sunday uh, in Lent, you have Jesus in the desert. The very last Sunday in Lent, Passion Sunday, you have Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, likewise, you know, the book of Genesis, they go from being in the garden to being driven out into the wilderness. And so there is this juxtaposition there between garden and desert. And it is this, one is a place of life and abundance, and one is a place more of desolation, more of a place of, yeah, uninhabited, but not just uninhabited by humans, like kind of uninhabited even on a broader kind of animal level, uh, where it's just like a deader place. Um, What's striking is temptation happens in both places, but temptation looks different in both places. Like, go back through the whole history of Israel, and it's often when things are actually going pretty darn well that they forget God. Mm-hmm. Like, it's when things are going pretty well and, like, they have abundance and they're militarily successful and, like, things are looking good that they're no longer mindful of God. And, like, I'm no different. I think a lot of listeners are probably no different. Where it's like when things are, are you know, really working out, then it's like, okay, this part's on me <laughs> when things aren't working out that part's on God. Like that's kind of how it sounds ridiculous to say it because it's ridiculous to think it, but it's easy to have that creep in. Uh, I'm way too fond of this stupid joke about a parking lot. I think I may have even told it to you before, but I'm going to tell it again where a guy is running late for a meeting. And so, you know, he's desperately like trying to find some kind of spot. He can't find a parking space anywhere. And so he starts praying, you know, like, Lord, I haven't been to mass in years. I'll, I'll stop drinking. I'll stop cussing. I'll, I'll go back to mass. I'll do blah, 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 blah. If you just uh, let me please find a parking spot. And then immediately, as soon as he says, amen, a guy pulls out and a space is right there in the front row. And he says, Oh, never mind, God, I found one. <laughs> that captures something about the spiritual life so well that like when things go badly we're like why did god do this to me when things go well i'm rarely like why did god do this to me i'm rarely like i don't deserve the nice things like i don't deserve the good things rather like i think of those as like the results of my own effort um so in that i think there's something to to purposely getting off of that treadmill purposely getting out of the temptation of luxury and the temptation of the desert and to say, okay, I see how I can be prone to like pride 
and uh, a certain sort of blindness to God that happens here. Or short of that, just being distracted from God. Mm-hmm. Like when you're alone in the desert with no one but God, there's no room for distraction. When you're surrounded by a ton of incredible things in the garden, in the city, uh, there's distraction everywhere. Yeah. And so if we complain about being distracted, part of the remedy for that is like, okay, well, probably remove those distractions from your life and then you won't be as distracted. You know what I mean? Like one of the, one of the big things that happens, and this is hopefully going to be a little convicting for some people listening. When people say that they get distracted as soon as they sit down and pray, nine times out of 10, that's the first time they've been silent. And the first time they haven't been like entertaining themselves or distracting themselves or occupied with something. And so they're going from like 60 to zero and it doesn't work. Whereas if they would take something like 15 minutes even of just like silence and detachment or ideally even much longer where they're not on their phones, where they're not being entertained by anything, where they're not like dealing with things, talking about things, interacting, where they're just like being calm. Now they're more spiritually prepared to go into pray. That, that I think nine times out of 10, even as even as simple as going it, when when the weather permits, going out and walking for no reason but to walk at a cadence, right? Not not to to exercise, not to do anything else, just to go almost as uh, kind of like a straight labyrinth, right? Just putting yourself on a path and tuning everything out, just to have yeah. that cadence and that breath and that walking. And no extra noise, right? No, no earbuds or conversations or anything, just to be in that moment of silence. I have to tell you, I was laughing as you were talking about the children of Israel, because when I was younger, I um, used to think to myself, well, you know, if God was less patient, uh, they wouldn't have this problem. Like by the time that God finally acted, it had been 40 years, and so they can't tie their this, this calamity to that thing because it's so far apart. You know, if God just would have, course i want it for them but not for me necessarily uh and there is this sense of um allowing ourselves to hear the voice of god so we don't get to that place we don't have to get to the voice of the psalmist saying how long O lord will you be angry forever right if we take these moments uh using that gas station metaphor again reestablish that connection be filled again with the holy spirit that carries us through um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way of thinking about it. I, I think there's that need to, yeah, to constantly reconnect. There's a, a line in Proverbs where it warns against the excesses of both, if you will, the garden and the desert. Uh, it just says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I become full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What it's doing there very neatly is saying, okay, so there's two basic ways we can go off course. One is the way of prosperity. This is one I think most of us are going to struggle with, mm-hmm. where I say, oh, who's the Lord? Like, I don't even know. I'm, I'm taking care of everything myself. And the other extreme is is the extreme of, of you know, total scarcity, total poverty, where you you start profaning the name of God and you start falling into resenting God and lashing out at God because things aren't going well. Lent invites us away from the first of those two ways. Um, it's a lot harder to get away from the second one. Like it's, if, 
if your problem is that you have too much stuff, that's an easier problem for us to fix than if your problem is that you have too little stuff. Uh, so the too much stuff, whatever that looks like in your life, whatever that stuff is, and this is why people, you know, like the church doesn't say you have to give something up for Lent, mm -hmm. but it makes sense that people are really drawn to it and people are almost eager to do it. Even people who maybe aren't that religious still have the sense of like, yeah, these things have an undue place in my life. And there's something incredibly liberating about just saying, I'm going to put this away for 40 days and not think about it, not be worried about it, not be consumed by the things that I'm consuming. Um, there's something so liberating about that. And uh, you can be filled with Christ. You can be, you know, your, your gas tank can be filled, not just a gallon, but can be filled up in a, in a more substantive way, hopefully to full, <laughs> like hopefully overflowing, um, unlike a, a real gas tank. Uh, and, you know, like it, it can actually transform your life in, in this profound way. You know, I, I've known people who, um, who experienced scarcity and, uh, and I say, I, I mean, I've, I've personally experienced scarcity as well, but specifically thinking about uh, these people who expected God to come and answer their, their scarcity in a specific way, right? I have this very specific thing. I'm going to pray for this very specific thing. Uh, and if this doesn't happen, um, then, then I, then my prayer didn't get heard. Right. Uh, and, I've watched a kind of desperation creep in to that mindset because the the prayer didn't get answered the way expected and it the did it again and it and it continued and it almost felt like they were always sitting at you know the doomsday clock at like 11:35 um waiting for just total annihilation to come upon them because the, they saw the need for things as being um really the essential point of life. So even, even in that moment of scarcity, the distraction was still there, uh, for material things. Uh, and, and I feel like if we truly understood uh, and truly believed that, that Paul was telling the truth when he said, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, not, not necessarily all our wants, but all the things that we need, then, we would maybe be in a better place to address that distraction. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of biblical examples that really back up your point. Um, the first would be look at Jesus's own ministry in places like John six, like he does the multiplication of loaves and then he goes from there to give them the spiritual lesson. He addresses whenever he finds that people are without food, he addresses that material need first but he never just leaves it there. This was an interesting debate that happened between then Cardinal Ratzinger and some of the prominent liberation theologians. Uh, the liberation theologians pointed out that first half that like, well, Jesus addressed the material needs of the people first. And they, they argued this is why their, their particular form of social justice activism uh, focused so much on, on the economic inequalities facing Latin America. But Ratzinger's response was, I think, a good one where he said, yeah, but man does not live by bread alone. Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, coming from the Israelites' experience in the desert, um, that we can't just leave it at, okay, the material is, is being addressed. Because in John 6, this is what happens. Like, like Jesus does a multiplication miracle, and the people just want more food. And he's right. trying to talk to them about the Eucharist. And they're saying, yeah, but yeah, but you can give us free stuff. 
And it takes a fair amount of that chapter for him to get them past that um, and, to something more substantive. And and let's just be honest, as we're talking about get, get them past that, not everyone wanted to get past that. Not everyone allowed him to get them past that. Some of them said, well, if this is who you are, we're, we're out of here, right? Yeah, exactly. Like when it's, uh, you know, free meal, I'm, I'm on board. When it's uh, the Eucharist and sacramental theology, you're weirding me out and I'm, I'm leaving. Yeah. Uh, come back with, with more food. And the irony there is that they try to like goad him into giving them food by comparing him to Moses, uh, who gave them manna in the desert. We'll go back to what happens there. Uh, the psalmist describes it really well and says the people tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. In other words, they weren't yeah. just demanding food. But like you said, with like the, the friend that you knew, like they had a very particular idea of the salvation they would accept. Yeah. They had a very particular idea of like how they needed to be helped. And so uh, they spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Yeah. Like the manna comes, but so does the punishment because they didn't trust God to actually take care of their needs. Um, in the Bible in a year timeline, Father Mike Schmitz does. He talks about the desert wanderings for 40 years is just like 40 years of being trained in the question of like, can you trust God? And we, and that, that's what the whole thing is about. And we, we had that discussion last Lent uh, with um, with Father Simeon Spitz, who's a Benedictine out of uh, Oklahoma. So you should go back into the archives, uh, outsidethewalls.com, find Father Simeon Spitz, because that whole story of the 40 years of God proving to them, I really am who I say that I am, uh, that's a conversation worth hearing. We've been talking today with Joe Heschmeyer. He's an instructor at Holy Family School of Faith. You can find his writings over at shamelesspopery.com. I'm there all the time. I encourage you to go read them as well. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for being with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. If you missed any part of my conversation with Joe Heschmeyer, you want to go back and listen to it again, maybe share it with your friends on social media. Have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at outsidethewalls.com. And each and every week, we produce an extra segment specifically in gratitude for all of our Patreon supporters. This week's extra segment is a doozy. We ended up talking for 22 extra minutes. So get more information about our Patreon support community and those extra segments there on OutsideTheWalls.com in the top right-hand corner of the page. You can see the link that says support the show hyphen Patreon. Well, let's go ahead now and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Go to Verbum.com and get your own Verbum Library. Try it free for 30 days and then pick the library that fits your needs. Our reading from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Mark. It's from this Sunday's readings. And here we hear the story of Jesus again. After doing this many other times before, calling his disciples to come away with him to a lonely place. And we hear this. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say. They were so terrified. Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them. From the cloud came a voice, This is my beloved Son. 
listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. As they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them not to relate what they had seen to anyone, except when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. That reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, and uh, I want to point out this in particular. This is an extraordinary event, right? This is the transfiguration of the Lord on, on Mount Tabor. This is a big deal as Christ reveals himself in, in probably the most pronounced way before the, uh, before the resurrection uh, of, of who he was. Now, this is something that Peter, James, and John got to witness because they were accustomed to following Jesus to lonely places, come alone and apart by themselves, right? Here's the whole thing, that you and I have the opportunity for Christ to reveal himself to us in real and extraordinary ways, but we have to become accustomed to following him to those lonely, isolated, solitary places so that we can have that encounter, far from distractions, far from everything else, focusing our eyes and our attention on Christ and his relationship to us. And it is in those places where these these bigger revelations come to us, whether that be hearing the still small voice of God and finding him there in the still small voice and not in the, not in the earthquake and not in the fire, whether it be the transfiguration or whether it just be Christ coming and meeting our need where we are in our spirit because we've become accustomed to going away with him to a quiet place by ourselves. And I would say, don't be discouraged if your first time out of the gate in a quiet and solitary place does not result in this, this deep revelation, right? Here we have the, the disciples after three years of following Christ everywhere he went, three years of answering with obedience every time he said, come away with me to a solitary place. Three years of this, and that's when that revelation came. After the relationship was built, after the trust was built, after they followed time after time after time, and so, yes, these times away can make a profound difference in our life, but it could be that the first time and the second time and the first three years, uh, while it is still spiritually beneficial, does not result in these kinds of, the, of life-changing, uh, perspective-shattering revelations from God. And as we're focused on, on this idea of uh, the deeper needs and longings and questions that we have in ourselves, baked into us as humans. Uh, we're going to read on man's deeper questionings. This comes from the Pastoral Constitution of the Church in the Modern World. Uh, Gaudium et Spes is a document of the Second Vatican Council, and here we read Numbers 9 and 10. The world of today reveals itself as at once powerful and weak, capable of achieving the best or the worst. There lies open before it the way of freedom or slavery, progress or regression, brotherhood or hatred. In addition, man is becoming aware that it is for himself to give the right direction to the forces that he has himself awakened, forces that can be his master or his servant. He therefore puts questions to himself. 
The tensions disturbing the world of today are in fact related to a more fundamental tension rooted in the human heart. In man himself, many elements are in conflict with each other. On one side, he has experience of his many limitations as a creature. On the other, he knows that there is no limit to his aspirations and that he is called to a higher kind of life. Many things compete for his attention, but he is always compelled to make a choice among them and to renounce some. What is more, in his weakness and sinfulness, he often does what he does not want to do and fails to do what he would like to do. In consequence, he suffers from a conflict within himself, and this in turn gives rise to so many great tensions in society. Very many people, infected as they are with a materialistic way of life, cannot see this dramatic state of affairs in all its clarity, or at least are prevented from giving thought to it because of the unhappiness that they themselves experience. Many think they can find peace in the different philosophies that are proposed. Some look for complete and genuine liberation for man from man's efforts alone. They are convinced that the coming kingdom of man on earth will satisfy all the desires of his heart. There are those who despair of finding any meaning in life. They commend the boldness of those who deny all significance to human existence in itself and seek to impose a total meaning on it only from within themselves. But in the face of the way in which the world is developing today, there is an ever-increasing number of people who are asking the most fundamental questions or seeking them with a keener awareness. What is man? What is the meaning of pain, of evil, of death, which still persists in spite of such great progress? What is the use of those successes achieved at such a cost? What can man contribute to society? What can he expect from society? What will come after this life on earth? The church believes that Christ died and rose for all and can give man light and strength through his spirit to fulfill his highest calling. His is the only name under heaven in which men can be saved. So, too, the Church believes that the center and goal of all human history is found in her Lord and Master. The Church also affirms that underlying all changes, there are many things that do not change. They have their ultimate foundation in Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That reading comes from Gaudium et Spes, and I encourage you this week as you seek out those solitary places, begin asking those deeper questions. Even if you already have an answer in mind, ask those deeper questions again and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Christopher and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join their numbers. Until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. 